Welcome back to a special edition of the Mo News Podcast. It's Moshe Wanunu here from Washington, D.C., where we just wrapped up two major interviews for the pod. You might have heard the highlights on the Daily Pod. Well, here we'll bring you the full conversations with U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken. In a rare moment, he was in Washington between his various trips around the world. We also had the chance to sit down with National Security Spokesperson John Kirby. You might recognize him from his daily briefings at the White House. So I'm really excited to bring you both conversations in the podcast today. I think you'll get some perspective here on the stories we cover almost daily here on the pod. We had a chance to ask some questions about a whole variety of topics, starting with the Israel-Hamas war as that heads into the 11th week. We talked about humanitarian issues, the state of the war, the hostages. We also, beyond the region, talked about the latest in Ukraine and Iran, as well as TikTok. I'm very grateful to Secretary Blinken and Admiral Kirby and their teams for making time for Mo News. Also appreciate the fact that we were able to get personal with Kirby. We talked about what he has learned about good communication, as well as his biggest daily critiques. They come from his mother and his wife. He'll talk about that in today's conversation. We tried to ask them about a few things they don't normally get asked about, so look out for that. Before we get started here, a quick reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for additional content. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support our original coverage, these additional interviews, and to support our independent journalism on Instagram, the newsletter, and this podcast. You can join Mo News Premium right now by heading over to mo.news slash premium. Again, it's a way to support the account, as well as get access to an extra Instagram feed and podcast. All right, with that, we'll get started here. First up, Secretary Antony Blinken. All right, Secretary, uh, so grateful you can make time for us. Uh, I want to talk about larger diplomatic goals, but I want to begin in the Middle East. The Israelis said they're not stopping until Hamas is gone. You've had a number of discussions, a number of trips there. What have you said to the Israelis? How much pressure are you putting on them right now to wrap things up? How close do you believe we are to the end of the conflict? Well, you know, we said from the beginning after the almost indescribable events of October 7th is that, of course, Israel has a right, even an obligation, both to defend itself and also to try to make sure that October 7th never happens again. Uh, and we continue to, uh, to support that. But it's also clear that how Israel does that matters, as we've said from the beginning, uh, and maximizing, maximizing every effort to protect civilians and to make sure that humanitarian assistance gets to those who need it is, from our perspective, critical. And at the same time, it's clear that this is uh, going to have to move to a lower intensity phase. Um, and this is some, very much part of our conversation with the Israelis. So you've been telling the Israelis it's time to move to low intensity? No, we've, we were having conversations with them about, uh, about moving to a lower intensity phase. The duration of uh, the current phase, these fundamental decisions are for Israel to make. As their ally, their partner, we can give uh, advice, we can give counsel, we can have uh, very direct conversations about how we see things. They fundamentally have to make these decisions. Do you believe that their goal, eliminating Hamas, is achievable? The goal really is and, and needs to be focused on making sure that Hamas cannot repeat what it did on October 7th. And you have a group that, uh, if left with the capacity and the stated intent to do that, and we've heard since October 7th, Hamas leaders say that if given the opportunity, they would do October 7th again and again and again. That's what they're intent uh, on, on dealing with uh, and making sure that, again, to the best of their ability, uh, this doesn't happen again. But it's also critical that there be a path to a durable, sustainable peace, durable, sustainable security for Israel. And that cannot only be achieved through military means. It has to be achieved as well through political means. Uh, and uh, from our perspective, we said this from well, well before October 7th, 
Um, we see the um, fulfillment of political uh, rights for the Palestinians, a Palestinian state. It's critical to that. What's one of the things that's happened is in a very perverse way, um, Hamas has captured the flag of Palestinian nationalism. And uh, fundamentally, the ultimate way to recapture that flag is to stand for a better idea. And the better idea clearly is making sure that Palestinians have a future in which they can decide uh, their own fate. You, you've said that the Palestinian Authority should be leading Gaza. Uh, the Israelis, at least from what I've heard publicly, are opposed to that. Uh, polls out of uh, the West Bank and Gaza show that more than 90 percent want Abbas to resign. Um, he's 88 years old. They're widely seen as corrupt. Are there better ideas? Are there alternatives there? Why prop up the Palestinian Authority? So first and foremost, it's imperative that Palestinians, Palestinian voices, Palestinian views uh, are reflected and ultimately the Palestinians have the ability to, to govern themselves. This is going to be a process. Uh, it'll be a process when the current conflict ends in Gaza, a process to get Gaza back on its feet, uh, to help its people. Uh, it's going to be a process to make sure that governance combines both Gaza and, uh, and the West Bank, uh, and uh, a process to see what kind of leadership emerges and how it emerges. I mean, ultimately, we stand for elections in, uh, around the world. Uh, that's something that you'd also want to see at some point. Um, but the most important thing is to make sure that Palestinians are governing themselves. And how they decide to do that, uh, by which group, by which people, that fundamentally has to be their decision. But it, it's not something that will necessarily happen from one day to the next. You've got to get a process to get there. I want to talk about hostages for a second. I know you've said you've, you carry a card with you with the names of Americans who are held abroad. There's eight Americans yep. uh, being held in Gaza right now, uh, nearly 11 weeks in. Um, Gaza the size of Philadelphia. We have the most powerful military on earth. I've heard this from a number of members of our community saying, how is it that we have eight Americans there, we give a, a lot of support to the Palestinians, uh, and those Americans are still being held? Why can't the U.S. do more to get those people home? We're on this every single day. And it's at the top of our list of priorities, which is to bring Americans home. We had, as you know, the humanitarian pause that resulted in the release of 110 hostages. We've had a few Americans who were released both as uh, part of that pause and prior to that. Um, and it's something that we would very much like to get back to. Unfortunately, Hamas decided to renege on its commitments, which is why that pause broke down and the hostage releases stopped. We're working to see if we can get back to that. But... It also underscores how incredibly complicated this is because, yes, it's a relatively small, uh, small area. Yeah. But as you know, Hamas has constructed uh, an entire city underneath the existing cities uh, with an extraordinarily elaborate uh, tunnel network. These are things that are not, not easy to get at uh, and very, very difficult to, um, uh, to do anything effective to make sure that you can bring people out uh, safely. The best way to do it is through uh, a negotiation, uh, and we've seen the results that we've gotten to date. We'd like to get back to that. Personal question for you. You've discussed your faith, um, and actually it came up. I remember there was an early meeting with you standing alongside al-Sisi of Egypt mm. where he mentioned, uh, you know, you're Jewish, yeah. and he had something to say about that. I was curious, uh, your identity in, in watching the events of October 7th, uh, watching the rise of anti-Semitism globally, um, how that's impacted you personally and how, how your identity impacts your diplomacy? Well, I think we all bring our identity, our backgrounds to the table in whatever we're doing. And certainly uh, I bring mine and I bring mine also as the uh, stepson of a Holocaust survivor, uh, as the uh, grandson of uh, someone who fled pogroms in what's now 
uh, Ukraine and came to the United States to remake his uh, life here. Um, you can't help but bring that to the table. And when you see something like October 7th that brings to mind the very kinds of atrocities uh, that your family had been subjected to in previous generations, you can't help but think of that. But having said that, I'm an American. I have the immense privilege of being the Secretary of State in this moment, representing our country, representing all Americans, and that's where I start. Uh, so I'm trying to make sure on behalf of the President that as we're engaged around the world, we're doing so in a way that advances American interests, American values. That's what this is about. This is a question that came up a lot because we wake up in the morning and you've already been to three world capitals. <laughs> the exhaustion factor being Secretary of State, what is the most challenging part? What is the secret uh, to doing this job, Secretary? Uh, the secret is having an incredible team of people working with you for every hour that I work, for every hour that I'm awake, they're working, they're awake two or three hours. And that's really the, uh, that's really the secret sauce. We just have an amazing group of people who are doing this every single day, every single night. And that's what keeps me going because uh, I know what they're putting into this. I want to make sure I'm doing the same thing. I was expecting to hear coffee. Well, that too. Okay. A little bit of caffeine helps. Um, in regards to Iran, there's some criticism that the U.S. has not been strong enough in fighting back more than 100 attacks across the region. BP, um, others now saying they're going to avoid the Red Sea in regards to the Houthis. Um, why hasn't the U.S. been tougher. You even saw former CIA director Leon Panetta say, you know, we need to be less selective. We need to be much more aggressive. The Iranians are sensing weakness. What's your reaction to that? Well, first, of course, we have taken action. Uh, we've taken action against uh, Iranian-backed militia in both Iraq uh, and in Syria. Uh, we have um, put together now uh, a maritime task force to deal with the threat that the Houthis pose to maritime shipping. We've got 40 countries, I think, uh, just today um, putting out a statement in opposition to what the Houthis are doing and also making commitments uh, to work on this maritime task force. But one of the things we said from the outset is even as we and the world are intensely focused on Gaza, uh, we also want to try to make sure that this conflict doesn't spread, uh, that it doesn't go to more places, that it doesn't go to Lebanon and Israel's border with, uh, with Lebanon, that it doesn't go to the West Bank, that it doesn't go to the broader region. And so making sure that the actions that we're taking uh, are very uh, deliberate, very focused on deterring the conflict from spreading, not provoking a conflict to, uh, to grow wider. That's something that we have to factor in as well. But we have taken resolute action when our people have been endangered. We've made very clear that we'll continue to do that. Uh, we've taken action uh, against uh, many Iranian individuals, Iranian entities, as well as, I said, the militia that are beholden to them that are operating in Iraq and Syria. Uh, but we want to make sure, in the first instance, that our people are protected. Uh, that's job number one. And second, that this doesn't spread. And so you have to be very deliberate about what you're doing. Your role is to promote U.S. image abroad. Um, the most popular, one of the most popular apps abroad uh, internationally and here domestically is TikTok. Mm -hmm. I was struck by your congressional testimony earlier this year. You said TikTok should be ended one way or another. Mm -hmm. I'm curious um, why you're concerned about TikTok and what you mean by ended one way or another. Well, you know, we have a, we have a real challenge with, uh, with, with TikTok and the fact that, unfortunately, we see in China, the use and abuse of, of, of technology uh, for reasons well beyond uh, what that technology is designed for. In other words, uh, in one way or another, uh, to get information that's used by the, uh, by the state, that's used by the military, and that potentially uh, could undermine our security. So we've had real, uh, real concerns about that, real concerns about the relationship between TikTok and the, uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese state, the Chinese military, and that's something we have to, um, we have to guard against. On the other hand, look, I recognize that so many people um, are on that platform, are getting information on that platform, uh, are having conversations uh, through that, uh, that platform. 
that um, it does pose a, a real question and a real challenge uh, in figuring out how we can appropriately engage while dealing with some of the real concerns that we have about security. So there are a number of ideas that are out there about how to, how to square that circle. It's something that we're looking at and working on. So ended one way or another? That- Again, uh, it, it really is a, a question of making sure that the security concerns that we have yeah. about the possible misuse or abuse of the platform uh, that in ways that could undermine our security as a country are addressed. Well, end here, big picture. You gave an address at Hopkins um, earlier this year. You talked about how uh, people around the world are losing faith in the international economic order. I've seen some analyses done that basically the world now is split 50-50, authoritarian regimes, democracies. Uh, we were sort of peak democracies about 10 years ago and then sort of fallen. Wondering, you know, countries aren't looking to China as a model here. Is that a failure of American foreign policy? Is that just good policy by the Chinese? How much does that concern you? And how are you trying to change that uh, momentum? Well, first, uh, I don't think that the countries are necessarily looking toward, uh, toward China. On the contrary, what we've seen, especially over the last two or three years, is a much greater convergence between us and many countries in Europe and many countries in Asia on how to approach some of the challenges that, that China poses. We're much closer than we've ever been. Second, I think you see countries around the world that have uh, done business with China that have uh, second thoughts, second thoughts about uh, taking loans and taking investment from China that turns into massive debt loads uh, on those countries, concerns about uh, the uh, importation of Chinese workers to um, build the the various infrastructure projects that China's engaged in, concern about worker uh, uh, standards, environmental standards, uh, corruption. uh, And so we see a lot of that. On the other hand, you also see countries that are laboring mightily under a few things. They're laboring mightily under t- debt burdens mm-hmm. that we have to help them get out from under. Uh, they're also laboring under the difficulty of getting access to, to capital to do the critical things that their people need and want them to do, including addressing some of the challenges of, of climate change, uh, dealing with food security, building infrastructure, uh, making sure that they have um, a sound energy future. So we are spending a lot of time and a lot of effort in trying to reform the international financial system so that countries that need it can have greater access uh, to capital, so that they can get out from under debt, uh, so that they can find uh, a means of actually addressing what their people want. We've spent a lot of time ourselves in uh, trying to work on things like food insecurity. That's a a challenge for countries around the world. We are, by orders of magnitude, uh, the largest donor to the World Food Program. We provide about 50% of its budget. To cite some other examples, China and Russia provide less than 1%. Uh, of its budget. We have major initiatives uh, to try to tackle some of the things that people are feeling and experiencing in their own lives, including the need for better uh, infrastructure, including the need for building climate resilience, uh, including the need for dealing with food insecurity. So you feel we're effectively competing with China? So we're, that's, here's, here's what it comes down to. Yeah. We're not asking people to choose. We're trying to offer a better choice. They have to decide. We're not making anyone decide. But if we're offering what we think is a better option, that better addresses their, uh, their needs and addresses it in a way that is also responsive to some of the concerns they have, I think I know the choice they'll make. Secretary, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Great to be with you. All right, thanks again to Secretary Blinken and his team for that conversation, finding time to speak with us amid all of his 24-7 work as America's top diplomat. All right, next up on the pod, we have National Security Spokesperson Admiral John Kirby, He breaks down the top issues the U.S. is involved in around the world daily for White House reporters in the Middle East and in Ukraine, as well as how he does his job in today's conversation. Here's our conversation with Admiral Kirby. 
Admiral Kirby, thanks for your time. I'm so grateful uh, you could uh, join us for the conversation. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with a really difficult question for you. Many millions of people around the world watch your briefings, world leaders, the president. But I understand you have two very tough critics at home. Is it true that your mother and your wife both watch your briefings? Tell me about their critiques. What's their feedback like? Yeah, I mean, every single time um, I get a, a text or two from each of them after a briefing or, or it could be a TV appearance. And, uh, and they're pretty, they're, they can be pretty rough on me. Um, it's uh, maybe I, I can't, I, they, they count how many times I say, um, or uh, the, the tie I'm wearing or the suit I've chosen, but mainly it's, it's how clear I have been or not. For instance, my, my wife does not like me being too colloquial. I, I grew up in Florida and sometimes I talk about alligators and snakes and that kind of thing. And to make my point, she doesn't like that at all. Uh, uh, my, my mother gets on me, particularly when I'm talking about sensitive foreign policy issues like Russia, Ukraine, uh, China, Taiwan. If I don't make it simple and clear enough, uh, she, she likes my sentences shorter, my words smaller, you know, my thoughts a little bit more crisp. Um, and so each of them come at me a different way, but. But it's it can be pretty tough. Well, I was going to say that sounds pretty productive, actually. That's pretty good. Feed- that's the, some of the same feedback I gave to reporters at CBS, which is explain it for the people at home. Right. Yeah. Break things down. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln used to say, don't be a speaker, be a talker. And I try to remember that, especially when I'm at the podium. And um, I know it's going to sound hokey, but it's true when I'm up there and I'm getting questions from the press. I try to pretend like it's my mother asking me that question, not say, Jeff Mason of Reuters or Peter Ducey of Fox News. And I figure if if I can give the answer the way I could, would give it to her, uh, then two things will happen, hopefully. One, it'll be more clear and precise, and I'll do a better job for the president. And two, I won't get such nasty texts after uh, after the briefing is over. At least not from home. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to hit a number of topics uh, that have uh, been in the headlines, something you've been addressing from the podium for a couple months now. We're now in the 11th week of the war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. And I want to start this interview uh, with the end, as in how does this war end? How much pressure right now is the U.S. putting on the Israelis to wrap this up? And how close does the U.S. believe Israel is to achieving its goals? Is it a matter of weeks, months, or could it be longer? There's an awful lot in there, so I'll try to unpack it as as, uh, briefly as I can. The Israelis have already talked about the fact that this could take some months. Uh, They have been saying that since the beginning. They reiterated that last week. And today, with our Secretary of Defense in Tel Aviv, uh, the Defense Minister of, of Israel said basically the same thing. We have to take them at their word. They're the ones on the ground. They're the ones in this fight. And what we want to do is make sure that they know we'll support them for as long as uh, as long as that fight is valid. And then you ask, like, how does this end? I don't think we here in the United States or in Washington know the answer to that specifically. What we do know is we can't continue. Is Hamas in control of Gaza? What can't continue is such a viable, violent, vicious threat in Gaza presented to the Israeli people and to the Israeli nation. So we know that that, at the very least, has to be an outcome here. Um, Now, when exactly it ends and how it ends, you know, again, that's really going to be for the Israelis to decide. I will tell you that we still don't support what people are, are, are calling or referring to as a general ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. It's not that we want more violence and more war. The war could end today if Hamas would do the right thing and Surrender all the hostages, surrender all those responsible for October 7th and lay down their arms. It could end today. 
But the reason we don't support a general ceasefire at this time is it would basically leave Hamas in control of Gaza. And that is a condition that just well, we, we just can't uh, support. It would also validate what they did on the 7th of October. Basically say, well, it's OK that you killed 1,200 people and took a couple of hundred more hostage. You know, we'll we'll sit across the table with you as a negotiating partner. This is not a group, an organization that you can trust as a negotiating partner for some sort of long term peace and, uh, and, and stability. Now, what we do support are humanitarian pauses, short term, more localized pauses to see if we can get hostages out and more aid in. We Over the course of that one week, we got 100 hostages out, got an increase of aid in. Uh, that was all good. And then Hamas, you know, Hamas pulled the plug on that. They weren't willing to release any more women and children. So we're back at it hour by hour to see if we can get them back at the table for that. Is the elimination, though, of Hamas a realistic goal at this juncture? And I ask that in light of the fact that, you know, uh, we've as Americans, we've watched what took place with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Of course, these are imperfect comparisons or the evolution of the insurgency into ISIS in Iraq and Syria, which, you know, you've you've been managing. You've been working on uh, for decades here. And we're seeing the rise in popularity of Hamas in the West Bank. We saw those green flags being waved as the Palestinian prisoners came home. So is it really realistic here to say there will be no Hamas in this post-war reality? It is certainly realistic uh, from a military perspective uh, to believe that you can decapitate that network, that you can cut off its leadership, cut off its resourcing, cut off its ability to train and, and plan and execute uh, attacks. Um, we, we proved that with ISIS. ISIS, and we still have a small number of troops in Iraq and Syria. In Syria, they're, they're mostly advisors. And in the same in Iraq, ISIS is nowhere near what it was back in 2014. It's still a viable threat, but it's it, it doesn't have a caliphate anymore. It's having a hard time just maintaining its uh, its own uh, ability to uh, to continue to exist as an organization. The same could be said for Al Qaeda. So going after the leadership, which Israel is doing, is a viable and can be a very valuable military tactic and approach to do this. Now that doesn't mean you're going to eliminate the idea of Hamas or the ideology that they propose and that they offer to people that are sympathetic uh, to their views. And I think our Israeli counterparts understand that. But what we do believe is a possibility here and a goal worth pursuing is getting uh, Gaza not to be governed by Hamas. Um, now, are you going to get rid of every fighter? Probably not. You're not going to kill the ideology, but you can uh, you can eliminate and terminate their ability to govern in Gaza. And that's despite the fact that you even have folks within the Palestinian Authority, which is the main group. It appears the U.S. is looking to put in charge there, saying, like, listen, they might be a junior partner. Like, we we find it very difficult to confront a reality where Hamas, after more than a decade of ruling Gaza, is going to have zero role in it. Well, we believe the Palestinian Authority also, you know, needs to be revamped. It needs to be revitalized so that it can be more credible and more authentic in the eyes of the Palestinian people. We know that, that Hamas does not represent or speak for the vast majority of the Palestinian people, particularly those in Gaza, and particularly now in the wake of this conflict um, and the suffering that Hamas has caused on them. There was a ceasefire, remember, on the 6th of October. Hamas chose to violate that ceasefire. Hamas chose to put the people of Gaza at greater risk. And so what governance looks like in Gaza going forward, we can't say definitively. Nobody knows the answer to that. But we do believe it has to start with a revitalized Palestinian authority that can be seen as 
authentic and credible in the eyes of the Palestinian people and that can, with, with regional support, that develop the structures and the institutions and the credibility to govern in Gaza. Now, again, what role would a uh, Hamas of the future look like in that? I just, we, we don't know. Again, what we do know is Hamas can't stay independently in control of Gaza the way they have been. So the humanitarian situation now, the U.N. has expressed uh, concern about the people trapped there without basic infrastructure. It's something the U.S. is concerned about as well, the spread of disease. Given the percentage of Palestinians displaced here, how much pressure is the U.S. applying right now on neighboring countries like Egypt to potentially take in refugees like women and children? And I say that in light of the fact that we saw Europe take in millions of Ukrainian refugees. We've seen surrounding South American, Central American countries take in millions of Venezuelan refugees. We haven't seen that in the Middle East. Is the U.S. pushing neighboring countries to do that? What we're doing is working with partners in the region to see if we can get more aid and assistance into Gaza uh, and so that we can alleviate the suffering. And just today, you know, based on our urging of the uh, of the Israelis, uh, the Israelis opened up Kerem Shalom, which is just a few miles away from the Rafah crossing in Israel. And so between Kerem Shalom today and Rafah, almost 200 trucks got in. Actually, maybe, yeah, yeah, just about 200 trucks got in, which is a really good uh, option now. We have another way of getting aid and assistance in. Uh, obviously, we're doing everything we can to support the UN relief effort inside Gaza. But many people in Gaza don't want to leave. It's their home. And, they, and they're worried that if they do leave, they might not ever be able to get back in. We do not support any kind of forced displacement of the people of Gaza outside Gaza. And that's one of the reasons, because we know that, uh, that they're worried that if they ever were to leave, that you know they wouldn't be able to get back in. So what we're trying to do is work with partners in the region to get more aid and assistance and provide more opportunities for medicine, for fuel, for food, for water, uh, so that the people in Gaza can get the care that they need, as well as, and this is not an unimportant point, working with our Israeli counterparts to be more precise, more careful, more deliberate in their targeting, so that as all this aid gets in, uh, and as temporary lodging is set up, uh, temporary facilities are set up for the people that have been internally displaced, and there's been more than a million that have been internally displaced, that they don't have to worry getting from A to B to get to that aid station that they're going to get targeted, and that while they're at that aid station, for however long they are, that they can be safe and secure there. So that's really what our focus is. So it's it's your, it's your the U.S. Uh, understanding that um, through enough aid into Gaza, you can alleviate these issues, that basically it's possible to deal with a displaced population, upwards of 80% of Palestinians for potentially years, right, given the destruction of the infrastructure there, um, that that's all possible within Gaza. We believe if we work uh, close and hard with our regional partners and with the UN, uh, that we can uh, go a long way to alleviating some of this suffering and to ensuring better safety and security measures for the people of Gaza. And again, we understand that many of them don't want to leave because they're afraid that they won't be able to get to get back in. You mentioned Secretary Austin is there as we speak. Uh, one thing that struck me, he said recently, was that the Israelis could achieve a tactical victory, but strategic defeat in terms of how they uh, pursue this war. Can you explain that concern, especially in light of maybe lessons we've learned as yeah. Americans in the wars we've pursued in the region in the past couple of decades? And that's where he's coming from, his experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, fighting insurgencies, fighting terrorist groups, uh, that if you're not mindful of the hearts and minds of innocent civilians that are caught in the crossfire, if you're not mindful of their needs, if you're not respectful of getting them the assistance they need, if you're not being careful in how you go after the bad guys, 
you could turn what would be a tactical victory, say a, a, an airstrike or two that that killed X number of terrorists. But you might create more harm and more suffering longer term if, if you're not careful about uh, what you're doing to civilians. And in fact, perhaps even inspiring younger generations um, through anger and rage to join Hamas or to join terrorist organizations. That's what he's talking about. Um, and it, this is something we learned through bitter experience in Iraq and, and Afghanistan when we weren't as targeted, we, we weren't as precise, when we weren't as focused uh, on the civilian populations in both countries. We ended up in, in some cases turning one-time friends in, into future enemies. Are you concerned the Israelis have done that in the first couple of months of the war here? In Gaza, we we know that they're receptive to that message. And Secretary Austin said a little bit, talked a little bit about that uh, today. They they're receptive to the message about a strategic defeat here if they're not more careful and more precise. And they have taken steps. That doesn't mean that more can't be done. More can be done. We don't want to see any more civilian casualties. The right number is zero. But they have taken some steps. Uh, to be more precise and more targeted, going in more on the ground. When you're in, on the ground with troops, uh, you know, up against the, these targets, uh, you can be a little bit more precise and surgical in how you're approaching that target than if you're just dropping a bomb from the air. Um, so when they went into North Gaza, for instance, they went in with a smaller amount of force than they had originally planned. When they started to shift to the south, they published maps online and and dropped leaflets telling people where they could go to be safe or not. That's basically telegraphing your punch to a to, to a, a potential enemy there. Where where is, is that something the U.S. did? Did the U.S. ever do that in Iraq or Afghanistan? I don't recall a time when we ever telegraphed our punches that way, where we dropped leaflets and maps and said, here's a safe place, here's not a safe place. But then again, we also had uh, some precision capabilities uh, militarily that um, that not every military has out there. So they, they are making efforts again, but I, I don't want to I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sugarcoat it um, in a, or our message to them, which Secretary Austin delivered again today. You know, there, there's more that can be done. There's more that should be done uh, because uh, because the civilian cap casualties uh, continue to happen. And, and obviously, we, we just don't want to see that. Some notable poll numbers are out in the U.S. that shows a generational divide in views of this war. Um, and certainly, the U.S. has seen its share of criticism uh, domestically, abroad from allies, as well as from adversaries, folks in the region, etc. As a communications expert, curious as to whether you think the U.S. government is effectively communicating uh, foreign policy priorities. The Biden administration is communicating foreign policy priorities, especially to this younger generation of Americans. What do you think explains the divide? I, I'm not a I'm not a pollster, and I, I wouldn't pr- presume to think uh, uh, be able to speak for public opinion across the, the country. Uh, I would tell you that as a communicator, you got to approach every challenge like this uh, with a sense of humility, and you have to realize that just because you're putting something out there doesn't mean it's being received in the way that you want it to be. Um, the, the most important part of communicating is listening. And the greatest myth of communicating is that you've actually done it. And so we've got to make every effort and, and take advantage of every tool to communicate our message and what we're doing and why we're doing it to as many audiences as possible. Understanding, in fact, maybe especially because certain audiences uh, are struggling to understand or to come around to supporting what we're trying to do. So, I mean, we I think we're approaching this uh, again with a, with a sense of humility and 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 trying to do the best we can to to make it clear what what we're doing and and why and and what the context is behind these decisions. I mean, what happened on the seventh of October should not be forgotten. Twelve hundred people innocently slaughtered. 
kids in front of their parents, parents in front of their kids, some 200 hostages taken. And again, for all those calling for a ceasefire, I would remind them there was a ceasefire on the 6th of October that Hamas chose to break. And so we're, we're going to, we're just gotta, we just gotta, you gotta keep, you gotta keep articulating it. I read a post you did a few years back, the 13 rules, Kirby's 13 rules. (laughs) Um, And I uh, was struck by a couple of them. One rule number two, always be skeptical. It's something you said you've applied in your line of work. You question policies, et cetera. Has that applied in this war? And can you elaborate? I would say the president has um, a terrific team on the national security uh, front. And that starts with the vice president right on down to to everybody in the National Security uh, Council that are are wrapped up in in this particular conflict. Um, And he welcomes uh, opposing opinions. He welcomes uh, his assumptions being challenged. He he wants us to wring every problem out and look at it from every possible side uh, as he decides where he's going to go on on the policy. Um, and it starts with him from a very principled position about uh, our unshakable alliance and support for Israel and their right to exist as a nation. It also starts from a very high principle of the need to respect the law of war and to avoid civilian casualties and to cause as minimal harm as you can to civilian infrastructure. Those two things are not in, they're not in contravention with one another. They are mutually supportive. You can do both. And that's, again, how we've approached this uh, with, with Israel from from the beginning. But but yes, I mean, all of us every day uh, when we get up and we read the news and we and we have our conversations with our counterparts, we're looking at this with a sharp eye and we're asking tough questions, not just of ourselves, but of our Israeli counterparts. Jake Sullivan was just in the region uh, a few days ago. Now you have Secretary Austin there. Secretary Blinken's been there three times. And I can promise you each and every one of those meetings comes from a place of asking our Israeli counterparts the tough questions. Have you thought about X? Why aren't you doing Y? Here's the lesson we learned in Iraq and Syria. You should think about applying that. So it's not just asking ourselves and being skeptical of our of our own uh, assumptions, uh, but but asking ourselves our counterparts those tough questions too. How unique is that relationship the U.S. has with Israel? How the conversations you describe between us and the Israelis? How many other countries in the world do we talk to like that? Do we have a relationship with like that? Well, you know, it's it, it's because you're friends uh, that you you can have those kinds of of, of candid, t- tough conversations. I would tell you, we we have those kinds of candid, forthright conversations with Ukraine, um, asking them those tough questions, you know, what, about their counteroffensive and what their plan was and what their thought was for the timing and for the strategy and for what the capabilities that they thought they were going to need. I mean, you can have those conversations with a friend and an ally in many ways more than you can with somebody who who you're not with, a, a friend and an ally with. But it's it's not uncommon for us to to do that. But you brought up Ukraine. Want to ask about that real briefly. Nearly two years in now, the counteroffensive this year, not as successful as some had hoped, uh, in some cases gaining yards uh, day by day. Putin said last week that this isn't ending anytime soon as far as he's concerned. What is the realistic end game uh, for war in Ukraine? Especially, uh, you know, I hear from a bunch of Americans who are like, listen, we've given them 100 plus billion dollars. Like, at what point does this end, um, given what we've seen? Will the Ukrainians sadly have to concede a bit of land to stop this war from going on perpetually? 
The answer to both those questions really are for the Ukrainians to speak to. President Zelensky gets to determine as the commander in chief if and when he's going to be willing to sit down and negotiate and what he'll be willing to negotiate over. We're not going to dictate those terms to him. Um, we all want to see this war end, just like the war against uh, Hamas. This one, too, could end tomorrow if Mr. Putin would pull his troops out of Ukraine and, and end this folly of his to try to subjugate the entire country. Though you don't see that happening anytime soon, right? I, I think it's difficult to see that it's going to happen you know, in, in the very near future, given that uh, along that front from the east to the south, uh, both armies are kind of digging in. Uh, they've got t- a tough winter set of months ahead of them, um, and it will be more difficult for them to operate as the weather gets uh, much colder and much worse uh, here in coming weeks. So I, I don't think we can expect an end to this you know, in the very uh, near future, but we all think it could end if Mr. Putin would do the right thing. As he gave this lengthy press conference what, a week or so ago, his end-of-year press conference. And he basically said, for the whole world to hear, I've not changed any of my strategic goals. Basically, Ukraine has no right to exist as an independent nation. And, you know, I have not not changed any of my goals in terms of subjugating that country. Um, And he talked about, you know, victory will be achieved. I mean, that's a pretty chilling message. And the Ukrainians, you can understand, took it very, very seriously. As today, even over the last couple of, you know, just the last uh, over the weekend, more drone strikes, more missile strikes on uh, energy infrastructure in Ukraine to try to weaponize the winter that's that's upon the Ukrainian people. So we've got to stay with them. Um, the counteroffensive, you're right, even they admitted it didn't go as far or as fast as they would have liked it to. But they did manage to claw back over the last couple of years, to claw back more than 50 percent of the territory that the Russians took in those early months of the year. They are a capable, a strong, courageous military. We've got to stay with them. And for those that, to your other point, that you know argue it's been you know $100 billion, yes, there has been a significant amount of uh, of energy put and resources put to helping Ukraine not only defend itself, but to sustain its governing functions, right. not just from the United States, from other countries. Imagine what the cost in our national treasure and perhaps in American blood would be if we just walk away from this and we just let Putin have his way and he gets all of Ukraine. And now all of a sudden he's bumped up right against the eastern flank of NATO. And he has threatened NATO countries in the past. You can't just blow that off. So, I mean, the, the cost here could be much, much greater in terms of our own involvement uh, in, a, in a larger war if we were to just walk away. All right, Admiral, I have a lot more to ask you, but let's end here. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> we, we've discussed uh, a bit of Ukraine and Russia. We've discussed the Middle East. What national security issue keeps you up at night? Uh, what is most concerning um, to the U.S. government and, frankly, maybe to you personally, given your experience? I think the president would tell you uh, that he believes we're at an inflection point in history right now. And one of the terms of that inflection point is the assaults on democracy around the world. And you have, you know, major democracies now, Israel, the only democracy in the Middle East. You have Ukraine, uh, which is a uh, has has gravitated to a, de- a democratic form of government here in recent years that now is under threat by uh, by Russia's Putin. And I think we we should not forget that democracy. We've seen it here at home on January 6th. We've seen how fragile democracy is. That's what one of the things that makes it so special is it what, what keeps it alive and vibrant is our belief in it and our ability and our willingness to defend it. 
Uh, and you're seeing democracy really under assault all around the world, even in the Indo-Pacific. And so I think back to the president's point, this is an inflection point. We've got to rise up to meet these challenges. We can't let the dictators and the tyrants and the autocrats win uh, because that's a world, a, a world we, we created this rules-based order that we've been living in since World War II, they would like to undermine it and throw it away. And I don't think that that would be good for anybody. Certainly wouldn't be good for security, but it wouldn't be good for international prosperity either. Admiral Kirby, we'll end it there. I so appreciate you uh, joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. All right. I want to thank Admiral Kirby and his team there for making time for us on Monday, as well as earlier Secretary Blinken and his team. We look forward to continuing our conversations with them in 2024. Before we go, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts, as well as extra content, your questions answered about the news on a members only Instagram account. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support original reporting, independent journalism as well as get access to all of that extra content. You can sign up right now for Mo News Premium over at mo.news slash premium for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. We also have a lifetime subscription available. Again, over at mo.news slash premium. I'm so grateful to all of you who have joined and would so appreciate if you'd consider joining today. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. We will see you back here soon.